one of the jokes I thought about it, which is the truth, is initially I was like, man, I'm going to have to read a lot of stuff. I'm going to have to ask a lot of questions. I'm going to be really annoying. And I was like, wait, I love doing all those things. So it works out very well for me. The vegan was in you all along. Today I'm joined by Mike Kaplan. He's going to be at the Over the Limit Comedy Festival Weinberg Center June 8th. Mike, how's it going? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. You were on Last Comic Standing, Season 10 of America's Got Talent. You've been on Conan, Letterman, Netflix. Are you on tour right now? Right now I'm in my home in New York City, but I do drive up to Boston tonight. Then my next trip is to Maryland. I read that you kind of frequent between Boston, New York, and New Jersey. Yes, I grew up in New Jersey, lived in Boston for college, and started doing comedy there, and then moved to New York. If you started getting your comedy chops in Boston, is that a rough town to really get your go? I think that getting started anywhere is rough. If anybody's like, oh, it's the fluffiest place to start doing comedy, then I think everyone would go there and then it would become rough. But Boston, we were doing comedy in buildings. Sometimes the buildings were in areas that were like, huh, this isn't, uh, like I have some friends that got guns pulled on them outside of one of the open mics that we frequented. That's not usually the way that comedy is rough. I would say starting in Boston was, was really great because there were a lot of clubs and open mics and restaurants and bars. It wasn't too big, so you could kind of get to know lots of people and there was a real sense of community. There was a softball league with the comedians. So was comedy rough starting in Boston? <laughs> well, the softballs could hit you in the head. Do you were up in Boston. You were there because that's where you were up at school. You were at Boston University, right? Yes, I went to BU for grad school and Brandeis before that for undergrad. You have a full-blown degree in linguistics then, right? I do. From what I've seen, you started out as like a musical comedian. You had like a guitar and we're doing that. Do you have a background in music before then? My parents were both music teachers when I was growing up. I started playing the violin when I was four, started hating it immediately, <laughs> but I'm very grateful for that now because now I've taken so many classes. You ever wish that you could learn a language or you wish that you could know a language, but without having to learn the language. The me that I am has all that in my past. I did all of the work, like learning where to put my fingers and where to put the things in my brain, like how to sing certain notes. And so I have all of this musical knowledge that is what motivated me when I started playing the guitar in high school. I wanted to be a singer-songwriter. That's how I got into comedy is I was just looking for places to perform my music. Some of the songs were funny. So I found the comedy studio in Harvard Square in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I asked if I could come play my funny songs there. They did allow me to do that. I talked in between the songs. That was also fun. And I found like, hey, if I can stretch this talking out, I don't even need to carry this heavy guitar. Music was my first love and passion and dream and goal. And comedy is now that uh, in large part because uh, you don't have to carry anything. I noticed that you're polyamorous. You seem to be the same way with podcasts. You've hosted two podcasts. Your current one, Broccoli and Ice Cream, seem to have started. What's that about? You said I'm polyamorous when it comes to podcasts. You might say, I'm not going to say this, but podlyamorous. So Ooh. just answer your question now. Oh, man. There's, That's I bet great. there's already a podcast that has that name. I love talking to people. I love being on podcasts. I love conversations. And so, yeah, my new podcast, Broccoli and Ice Cream, is mainly each episode deals with the work of people's life, like what they work at, not necessarily their career, how they spend their time, what kind of writing they do, what kind of art they create, sometimes working on themselves, their self-improvement, their spiritual life. The work is represented by broccoli and then the joy of their life, what they're doing when they're not working or what they work at to be joyful. Because sometimes there's an intertwining and that joy is represented by ice cream. So each week, a free episode comes out on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And then also a bonus episode comes out with each guest that people can get at Kickstarter Drip. 
for a small contribution. What was Hang Out With Me? Was that your previous podcast? Was that just an interview series? It was. I named it because I've been guesting on a lot of different podcasts. I remember I came away from one that I just had such a great time on. Like, I think I might have been in a bad mood when I went in, and it wasn't even people that I knew very well, but we just had this sort of communion of a conversation. It just made me feel so good to hang out with those people, and I was like, I'd like to be kind of, if I can, as much in control or in charge of my conversational life. So I was like, why don't I start inviting people to have conversations with me. So I called it Hang Out With Me, and I would have most often two other guests. So we'd have like a three-person conversation, sometimes one-on-one, sometimes too many more than that. (laughs) And I was doing it on the Keith and the Girl Network. They produced and engineered and housed me. But since the beginning of this year, we have parted ways amicably. I still love Keith and the Girl, but I'm just, I purchased and learned how to use my own equipment. So in a way, I'm actually sort of living out the combination of work and joy by learning how to do the work of creating my podcast to bring myself and others joy. You've talked a lot about positive stuff. I was looking at your Twitter feed and was kind of struck by the fact you have a really positive tweet pinned to the top, but then like every tweet that falls is also fairly positive. Looks like you almost like a motivational speaker on Twitter and Facebook now. For myself and for my own kind of, you know, mental health and clarity and calm, I don't go on Twitter as often as I used to. I saw Lin-Manuel Miranda and this playwright that I follow, John Patrick Shanley, both of whom I love their work. And I love what they do on Twitter. Like I saw them both putting like good morning tweets and good night tweets, sort of like motivational, meditational, aspirational, inspirational, all kinds of things that rhyme with ational. And their posts made me feel good. And I was like, well, I think I can also do my version of that. And so probably like some months ago, I started every morning doing a good morning post and every night doing a good night post. And they're usually just meant to be sincere and aren't meant to be, you know, jokes, certainly, which is funny because sometimes people will find my Twitter because they follow other comedians and they get my feed recommended to them. One time a guy was like, this good night post, this is unoriginal and hacky and not funny. (laughs) And I was like, oh, this isn't, I don't know if you thought that I was saying good night to be an original joke. I definitely don't think I'm a comedian who invented, quote, Good night. As a, I don't think good night is a joke, even though most comedians do say good night. So I'm moving forward. I'm going to be the good morning comedian. I don't think anyone is saying good morning at the beginning of their shows. I'm not doing these positive affirmation posts instead of jokes. In fact, I think that by thinking those positive thoughts and feeling them and, you know, hearing back from people who appreciate them, that makes me feel good and sort of powers perhaps the creative energies. And maybe I come up with more and different and better jokes than I would have. And it's just sort of another step along the path through life that I'm on, which involved starting meditating a couple of years ago and doing ayahuasca ceremonies a few years before that and trying Tai Chi and also just practicing as much as possible. I know there's like buzzwords and a lot of people are talking about and or making fun of the practice of mindfulness and gratitude. And especially in today's world where there's a lot of work to be done, a lot of suffering that can be alleviated, hopefully, and that we're working towards that I certainly in my own personal life bubble, I am very grateful for what I have and want to do what I can to help everybody else as much as possible have what they can have and appreciate what they do have if they want and can. You meditate. I'm also a meditator. Do you do TM or is it mindful meditation? I'd heard about Headspace. That was my way in. So I I meditate right now, mostly with the Headspace app, but also some other guided meditation apps. Do you ever come up with a joke while you're meditating? Will that stop a meditation and you just got to go write it down? 
I don't usually stop to write things down. I remember the very first time I got like a massage. I've only had like a few massages as an adult or in my life at all. And I remember it was maybe a 45 minute massage and I was sort of concerned, but I won't have my notebook. I won't have my recorder. What if I think of something that's really funny? And so I think I spent some chunk of the experience sort of focused on if I did think of something, trying to remember it. But now I know that ideas will come and ideas will go. Actually, I went in a float tank for the second time last week. It was sensory deprivation, complete darkness for 90 minutes. And it became sort of a very meditative experience. And I did throughout it think of ideas for songs, song lyrics, jokes, lessons that I wanted to remember. And I'm certainly not an enlightened master of all things meditation. And probably, you know, if I did just strive to let these things go as they happen, just note that they happen and let them go rather than try to cling to them, perhaps I would be further along on some path. But this is where I'm at now. And so the thing that I do sometimes is if I think of three things, I just sort of remember the first letters of them. Like one of them started with L, one started with E, and one started with G. So I'm like, well, just leg. And then at the end of the session, if I'm like, what were those things that started with L, E, and G? And then I have a better chance of remembering them. And then if more things happen, then I come up with other mnemonics. And that was for a 90-minute float session. For my most meditations, I do 20 minutes or so. And usually I just do my best to focus on the work and presence of the meditation, you know, the breath or the visualization or whatever's going on. But yes, sometimes my mind does think of things to answer your question. It's good to meet another floater. I also love the float stuff. So that was your second you can keep up with it? Oh, yeah. My first one was enjoyable, but my second one was really like the kind of experience that I'd heard about that was more almost psychedelic at points. It's crazy because you're not taking anything. You're just floating in water and darkness forever, but then you'll kind of hear things or see things. Yeah, I had auditory hallucinations for the first time, and it was enjoyable, as well as other sensations, thoughts, and feelings that were pleasant and or valuable. You're still writing music, right? Do you plan on putting on a music album or is that just something you do in your free time? Both. It's something that I do in my free time, but I also did put out a music album about a year and a half ago called Many, Many Musics. And it was the first sort of wide released. I'd made like a lot of songs as a teenager and in my early 20s, and I'd created my own CDs that didn't have like any kind of code where you could find it online or anything. I just sold them to friends. But this one you can get on Spotify, Bandcamp. You can listen to the songs of many, many musics right now. And I also did do a comedy music album with my buddy Micah Sherman about five or six years ago called Please Be Seated. So that one's mostly comedy music. And this most recent one, there's some comedic stuff, but it's mostly just straight ahead music that I made. I kind of blew through it quickly at the start, but you've been on Conan a couple of times. You actually were on Letterman. How do you pick out your five minutes that you get on there? Or what's it like being on one of those shows too? When I started out, I was mostly writing a lot of short one-line jokes, the kind of which are decently appropriate for a late night show. Most people who go on late night shows aren't just doing like a long story. Some people will do obviously like larger chunks or bits, but for me, it's sort of the format was right there. Depending on what show it is, sometimes you just, you tape yourself doing a five minute set, a 10 minute set, multiple five minute sets. Sometimes there are some people that I just send a transcript to now, and then they'll pick jokes that they like and will in combination work with each other to figure out what the set is. With your style of comedy, I just realized I did not bring that up, <laughs> considering we're teasing one of your shows. Family-friendly? What kind of style of comedy can people expect to hear from you at the Weinberg on June 8th? Whether it's family-friendly depends on what kind of family you have. In general, when I do what I want to do and say what I want to say, which is most of the time, most shows, obviously, you know, you get hired by a company to do a corporate thing. They might want you to not say certain words. Obviously, on TV, you can't say 
certain words, but this show, I say what I want to say. There'll be some talk of drugs with respect to things that I've learned and grown to be like, it's interesting. I feel like drugs have made me more religious. They've gotten me more in touch with myself, more spiritual, let's say, more sort of open to the ideas that everybody has. Like everybody has different experiences. There isn't just one way to live life. I guess the theme is kindness. The show that I'm doing right now, I'm bringing to the Edinburgh Fringe Fest in August, and it's called All Killing Aside. And so it's about not murdering people, which is a thing that Jesus was very into. So he comes up a little bit, some stuff about veganism, some stuff about polyamory, perhaps some stuff about these ayahuasca ceremonies that I've done and sort of insights I've gleaned from them, some stuff about gun control, some stuff just about my general thoughts about my advice for myself of how to live. With veganism, was that a choice you made? Did you have experience that made you want to go vegan? Oh, yes. I didn't accidentally become vegan, 100%. I probably in high school thought thoughts that many of us have, I'm sure, thought whether or not you've seen any of the numerous you know, documentaries or read about factory farms. I think most reasonable people agree that there are ways animals are being treated that is heinous and torturous. And if we could not participate in those situations, then that would be better. Or if animals could be treated better, if animals could be not harmed as much, not be killed as much. So that was the kind of thinking I had in high school, but I didn't know how to eat any other way than I'd been raised to eat. But then in college, there were many options, other cuisines that I'd never had before, friends who introduced me to just different types of restaurants. And even on campus, there were like some vegetarian stations in the dining hall. So I was like, well, I think I can try. And so I tried and it worked. And then a few years later, I was like, I think that the meat industry and the dairy industry are the same industry. So I don't think I can justify feeling that meat is harmful, but dairy is not harmful because it's the same cows that are in the system and the same pain involved. So like, I guess I have to try to become vegan. And one of the jokes I thought about it, which is the truth, is initially I was like, man, I'm going to have to read a lot of stuff. I'm going to have to ask a lot of questions. I have to be really annoying. And I was like, wait, I love doing all those things. So it works out very well for me. The vegan was in you all along. We all start vegan, you know, until we have that first drop of breast milk. That's, you know what? There we go. <laughs> I was, I was guessing you sound really serious about veganism. So I was curious if you did have jokes about it. I have, I'd say on every album, I think I have, you know, four albums of comedy of stand-up that are out right now and this new hour that has yet to be recorded. All of them have at least some chunks about veganism that were my experience and thoughts and reactions to people and ideas and the topic at the time. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me about a little bit of everything. Is there anything you want to tell people that are going to come and see you on the, the 8th? Thank you for coming to see me on the 8th. I'm very excited to be doing the show and thank you so much for having me in advance. Thank you so much for the good chat. I uh, love talking to fellow floaters and meditators and all that stuff. Uh, good luck with everything. I'm, I'm going to have to start subscribing to Broccoli and Ice Cream. want to hear an episode of that. I appreciate it. Thank you and encourage anyone else who enjoyed hearing me talk right now. It's more like that with other people. So thank you and anyone else for listening. Have a great day.